Hello, and welcome to episode 140 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Joanna Schwartz about her book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Joanna Schwartz is a professor of law at UCLA, where she teaches civil procedure and courses on police accountability and public interest lawyering. Her research has been quoted and cited by the United States Supreme Court Justice jo- uh, Sonia Sotomayor and more than two dozen state Supreme Court, federal circuit court, and federal district court decisions. Today, we'll be discussing her book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Joanna Schwartz. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I always ask the same first question. It's kind of like the comic book origin story questions. I don't know if you're going to think of yourself as a villain or a hero, but uh, how did you get from wherever you started in life to becoming a law professor and writing about police accountability? Well, I I definitely will, given those options, choose a a hero's story here. Uh, Fair. (laughs) (laughs) I I began, I decided to go to law school um, when I was working in the Bronx at an alternative to prison program there, working with first-time felony offenders uh, and and advocating before judges to get um, those those first-time felony offenders who were usually teenagers into a program instead of going to prison. And uh, seeing the courthouse and and really seeing the injustices of the criminal justice system and and the 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 numbers of black men, black and brown men just funneling into the courthouses with their crying families in the audiences day after day after day made a huge impression on me, made me want to be a public defender. Uh, but I went to law school, and while I was in law school, started, doing um, civil rights work. I was actually working um, in a legal clinic at school on behalf of uh, a couple of different women who had been raped in federal prisons by officers. And and that experience working with them um, on those cases really built in me a, a strong interest in doing plaintiff side work, representing people in these civil suits. So I graduated law school. I clerked for a couple of judges. I ended up working at a small civil rights firm in New York City. And doing that work, I started asking questions about how the system actually worked, about how, um, why it was so difficult to get justice in civil rights cases, and why these cases didn't seem to be having as much of an impact as I thought they should be having. And so then I became a law professor. And then I've spent really the past 15 years or so researching how civil rights litigation works on the ground. Uh, Research that's really formed the cornerstone of my book, Shielded, um, which I began to write in late 2020 following the murder of George Floyd when all of a sudden people became really interested in these arcane things like qualified immunity, which I'd been studying for years. And I wanted to write the book to be able to explain how difficult it is to get relief uh, even when your rights have been violated in the system, and to try to explain it in a way that people who don't read law review articles for fun on the weekends would find compelling and interesting and understandable. Well, you've definitely, I, I've definitely seen you on 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 podcasts, on television, on all kinds of things talking about the book. 
Uh, so you probably been asked all the questions I'm going to ask you probably like 400,000 times. But before we get too deep in the weeds on, and, and we'll be discussing some pretty heavy stuff, uh, I've also been trying to get to know my guests a little bit more. And so one of the ways I do that is by asking if they have any hobbies. Do you have any hobbies? <laughs> it's a great question. It's probably the hardest question that you're going to ask me uh, during the course of this conversation. Um, you know, I have two teenage kids and I have a dog. And uh, a lot of my life when I'm not um, thinking about civil rights litigation and police accountability, I'm, I'm uh, spending time um, with my kids and my husband and my dog. Uh, my son's a baseball player um, and uh, going to his, his high school games is one of the high points of my week whenever, whenever that happens. Um, and if I, if I can't watch him playing baseball, Watching the good old L.A. Dodgers play is is a second best favorite for me. Now, it sounds like you originally, am I right that you're originally from New York or you just were there for school? I grew up, I grew up in Washington, D.C., actually, um, within the bounds of D.C. uh, and uh, then went to um, college and law school in New England based in New York uh, for about um, 10 years on and off. Um, between college and law school. I just was going to say, as someone I was born in New York uh, myself, uh, there is sort of a fraught history, obviously, between the Dodgers and New York. (laughs) So that you landed in California and are rooting for the Dodgers. I thought I'd at least ask, but it sounds like you've got to get get out of a baseball jail free card. (laughs) It's a a really good point. And actually where I worked in the Bronx, in the the courthouse, um, was a couple blocks from 161st and Grand Concourse, which is where Yankee Stadium um, is. So Yankee Stadium was like my back door. Um, and, uh, you know, I, when I was in New York, I, I liked the Yankees before I, before I moved to, to L.A. And, and, and learned better that, that the so Dodgers here, were the here's team. Here's the problem for me is my family were Brooklyn Dodgers fans, so they hate the mm. Yankees and they can't root for the Los Angeles Dodgers so I had to become a Mets fan. Uh, <laughs> so that's basically what it was left to me at the time. So there's been some suffering as a result of that over the years. I don't know. I think you can. I think you can join the Dodgers. I'm again. actually a transplanted Rangers fan because I actually had. Uh, uh, after a while, I switched because I lived in Texas for a while and I had season tickets. So uh, since then, I've been a Rangers fan, and uh, that's also been a pretty brutal experience. But <laughs> With a few exceptions, oddly <laughs> enough, the two times that they were, this is getting way too deep in the weeds, but the two times that they were in the World Series, one was when I just got arrested and was in jail, and the other <laughs> was in prison. So, you know, it wasn't exactly high times all the way around after all the years of suffering, but, and then they well, lost times, so whatever. Well, I have, a, I have a tie-in for you, which is that I've learned from my son's baseball coach that when you play baseball, and also when you watch baseball, you have to get accustomed to losing often, right? And uh, striking out often. And there's no other place where you strike out as much as with civil rights litigation and <laughs> trying oh, to nice vindicate bridge. your Very constitutional nice. rights. Very nice uh, getting <laughs> us back on track here. <laughs> so anyway, your book, Shielded, represents a, a, the results of a lot of research. Can you talk about the process of preparing to write the book and kind of how you went about the research process before we talk about specifics? Yeah, and a lot of the research is research that I had done before I started writing this book and work that I had published in various law review articles. Not all of it, but but a lot of it. And really, I started this research with 
questions. It, you know, some people, when they think about doing empirical research, they have, they find data and they think, what can I ask? How can I parse this data to get to an interesting answer? I work the other way around. I have a question about how things work. How am I going to prove this? How am I going to get the answer to this? And it really started the very first question that I asked empirically as a researcher was something that I was thinking about as a young civil rights lawyer practicing in New York City. I was working on a class action against New York City's Department of Corrections for abuses on Rikers Island that many people have heard of uh, and heard of. Because of there's still a lot of abuses. <laughs> <laughs> there's still, there's been decades and decades worth of litigation, which, which tells, you know, which tells you something to begin with about how challenging it is to change these kinds of systems through litigation or any other means. But I was working on this case. I was deposing, meaning, you know, questioning under oath, these officers who had been involved in beating up our clients. And I was preparing by looking through their personnel folders. And I was really surprised to see there was nothing about their litigation history in their personnel folders. When I deposed them, they didn't know anything about their litigation history. They didn't necessarily know if they'd been sued, what the claims were, what the resolution was, how much was paid. And it wasn't just them, it was their supervisors also, all the way up to the associate wardens. And this really stuck with me because if I was working my tail off on these cases and our clients were investing a lot of, of risk and time litigating these cases themselves and nobody in the Department of Corrections knew anything about them, you know, what, what were we all doing and what was the problem? So the first question that I researched, uh, the first question that I asked when I got to UCLA um, as a researcher was, whether and how often and how police departments gather and analyze information from lawsuits brought against them. You know, in other words, was what these officers were doing on Rikers that I deposed from Rikers, were they lying to me? Were they, um, or was this something unique to New York or was this a broader phenomenon? And that was the first question that I asked doing a lot of interviews. You know, as soon as you ask a question and start studying it, you start to think about more things, <laughs> more questions come up. And, and really that's, I mean, each, each research project I've done has then prompted other questions that I've aimed to answer. And I've done it through, I've gotten to these answers through interviews, um, through public records requests from dozens, hundreds of agencies. Um, I have looked at uh, dockets like court filings in almost 1200 cases across five um, federal districts. I've done qualitative interviews with lawyers um, and I've you know looked at hundreds of police manuals um, and training materials. And so each of those different kinds of um, studies have been, the, the different methodologies have really been prompted by what the question, you know, what, what information you need to answer the question. To me, when I think about police, I think that if someone has the ability to use deadly force, they should be held to a pretty high standard for using deadly force or force at all. Really. Uh, it's not that I inherently think police don't have value or anything like that. I just think that, you know, with, as I say, in Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, but that's not really the way the courts look at it at all. Can you kind of foreground the history and specifics of what you mean by the police becoming untouchable? I don't think they were ever particularly touchable, but 
you know, let's <laughs> start getting into that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that in our history, there's been, you know, shifting understandings of how much, um, you know, how much uh, power they should have, how much oversight there should be. And in 1961, the Supreme Court first recognized that police officers and other government officials could be sued in federal court for constitutional violations. Um, and this is a case called Monroe versus Pape that I talk about a lot in the book. It was sort of in the midst of the civil rights movement, uh, you know, the, as, as there was increasing focus on the need for federal oversight and the need for federal protection, um, and against a backdrop of, of decades of uh, police and other government violence um, and harm um, that had really just been allowed to go, um, you know, unremedied in the in the states, particularly in the South. And so you say, you know, did the <laughs> I don't know if the police ever were un, anything but untouchable. But at that moment in 1961, when the Supreme Court said there needs to be we recognize that there is this ability to sue government officials. And when you hear or read the Supreme Court talking in those early decisions about the need for compensation and the need for accountability, it sounds like a system where police are not above the law. But uh, as I describe in the book, in the decades following 1961, the Supreme Court and state and local governments and newspaper reporters and scholars all uh, began telling this story about the horrors that would result if it were too easy to sue in these cases. And they said courthouses would be overflowing with frivolous cases and officers would be bankrupted and no one would agree to serve as an officer under these conditions or be a valiant and strong officer under these conditions. And so we wouldn't have a dedicated police force and then we would have chaos. I mean, and, and the pre-Ferguson Ferguson effect, right? Yes, right, right. Um, and and that's a story that has been told in many different forms. Um, and it's been used in a variety of different ways, primarily by the Supreme Court, but by other actors also to chip away at that power and the power of being the power to, to sue, uh, the power to seek justice in these cases. And they've done it in a variety of ways. Um, as I, I think we're going to talk about a lot of them. Yeah. Here a bit. So, so we, so I don't need to, I don't need to go into each one, but they've used well, that. I think argument. we probably will. But. <laughs> well, not right this moment. All right. So enough talking from me. They, that, that's the, that was the moment. If there was a moment of sort of a high point of civil rights protections, I would, I would place it in the early sixties. So to kind of foreground this a little bit more, I think there's probably two things that people, like they really want to understand how this all works. They need to kind of understand these two things first. Uh, one is what you were just talking about a sec second ago, which is section uh, 1983 cases. And the second one is qualified immunity. <laughs> so can you explain a little more specifically what section 1983 cases uh, are and how they function? to provide a potential remedy for police abuses. Yes. So Monroe versus Pape, which I was just referring to this 1961 case is referred to as a section 1983 case. And section 1983 refers to the place in the United States code book where it, there is a statute 
Uh, it was originally not called Section 1983. It was originally called the Ku Klux Klan Act, and it was enacted in 1871 in Reconstruction following the Civil War at a time when the Ku Klux Klan was newly formed and the Klan and other white supremacist groups were torturing and killing Black Americans and local law enforcement and government officials were either participating in the violence or standing idly by. And so in 1871, Congress enacted the Ku Klux Klan Act, codified, located, and called Section 1983, to provide a way for people to bring a lawsuit against a government, well, against a person who had violated their, their constitutional uh, or civil rights. In 1961, I think, and in the subsequent years, what Section 1983 has been understood to allow is for people to bring a lawsuit against a government officer or a local government um, for the violation of their constitutional rights and any any number of them or or you know multiple of them together, and to seek damages, meaning money or some sort of forward-looking, what's called injunctive relief, which can be a claim to change a police policy or practice or the way that they do their investigations or something like that. And the second concept that kind of the, the antagonist in this is qualified immunity. We hear the term a lot, but how would you define it and how does it play into these cases? Qualified immunity is a protection for officers um, police officers and other government officials that was created by the Supreme Court in 1967. So that's six years after Monroe versus Pape. And it was first described by the Supreme Court as a good faith defense, meaning if an officer violated the Constitution, but they were acting in good faith, they would be protected from money damages. It has nothing to do with criminal prosecutions. It actually has nothing to do with these claims for injunctive relief. It's just about money damages. Um, and that was a case, by the way, in 1967, where the, the officer had arrested people under a statute that was later found unconstitutional. So the officer could say, I thought I was enforcing the law. That law became bad law, um, but I was acting in good faith. In 1982, though, the Supreme Court completely uh, redefined what qualified immunity requires and said that it is no longer this subjective good faith idea. It's instead a protection that officers get unless they've violated what the court calls clearly established law. That's an objective standard. So an officer could be acting in bad faith so long as they didn't violate clearly established law. And as the years have passed and the Supreme Court has gotten more and more conservative, the definition of clearly established law has gotten narrower and narrower and narrower. Until today, what the Supreme Court has instructed is that except in the most egregious cases where what the court calls obvious constitutional violations, which they have interpreted very narrowly. A person who's suing an officer has to show, has to come forward with a court decision holding unconstitutional, nearly identical conduct. And it's not enough. The Supreme Court has really clearly said it's not enough to say 
that an officer has violated a general legal principle. Like it's not enough to say that an officer violate, used excessive force. It's not enough to say that an officer used force against a suspect who had surrendered, even though that's a general legal principle, because it's not particularized to the facts of the case. You need an off, a prior case holding unconstitutional where an officer used a similar type of force under similar circumstances. And the hair splitting can get extreme in these cases. And so if yeah, you- there's a bunch of examples in the book. I don't know if you want to talk about any particular example, but some of them are pretty egregious. You're just yeah. Like- Give me a break. Right. So I'll tell you about two very quickly. One, one was um, a case brought by a man named Alexander Baxter, who um, was a, had, would, had been suspected of burglaring a home. He had burgled the home. Um, officers found him. He surrendered. He sat down with his hands in the air um, and they nevertheless released a police dog on him who bit him and attacked him under his arm. He brought a lawsuit, um, but his case was dismissed on qualified immunity, even though it's generally recognized and officers are trained about the fact that you cannot use force against a suspect who's surrendered. In addition, there was a court decision from that very same court that said it was unconstitutional to release a police dog on a person who had surrendered by lying down. But the Sixth Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals that was hearing the case, said there were enough factual distinctions between the case with the person lying down and the person sitting up with their hands in the air and surrender that the law was not clearly established. And one other example I have to mention, the case called Jessup versus City of Fresno which is a case where an officer was executing a search warrant on a house and helped himself to a quarter of a million dollars in cash and rare coins that he did not put in the evidence uh, register and just kept for himself. When the officer was sued, he got qualified immunity too. And the, the court agreed that this was not good behavior, this was improper and perhaps illegal, but there was not a prior court decision that had put that officer on notice that had clearly established that what he had done was wrong. The officer had no way to know that stealing a bunch of stuff from people was just no way. How would you, (laughs) how would the officer know that? How Uh, would they know? How would they know? So, you know, that's not, these are just a few of the examples, you know, of how they started to narrow this. Uh, Often people just assume that the law is easy to access, you know, like, well, the law says that just get a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what people don't understand, and since I've been through the process, I know this, that hiring an attorney can cost many thousands of dollars. And most Americans have a hard time putting their hands on $500. At the core of a lot of the ability to use Section 1983 successfully is actually having a civil rights attorney uh, that'll take the case, but it's actually pretty hard to ensure that attorneys have a method of recovering fees in Section 1983 cases. Is that correct? Am I am I getting that? You're getting it. You're you're getting you get a hundred on the exam. You're doing you're exactly right and. Um, this is, you know, you, you don't think of there being a lack of lawyers. I mean, the, the, uh, that is not a common claim to be making in our society, but there's a lack of lawyers who are willing to bring civil rights cases. And, and as you say, it comes down to the way in which lawyers are paid. Um, they, uh, most people who have been abused by the police don't have thousands of dollars to pay a lawyer. And so they enter into what's called a contingency fee arrangement which means that the lawyer gets nothing if the person loses their case. And if they win, the lawyer gets a portion, usually a third of any recovery. And um, 
what lawyers who I've interviewed, and I've had this own my this experience myself as a lawyer, is that these cases are riskier than the average personal injury case or medical malpractice case. They're riskier, they're more expensive to bring, they're more complicated. Getting past a barrier like qualified immunity uh, takes a lot more time than it takes to bring a personal injury case to trial. And juries are often prejudiced against people who have previously had interaction with the criminal justice system in the past. Um, you know, depending on where you are in the country, uh, you know, people who um, are homeless, people of color, uh, people who are LGBTQ, uh, people who are immigrants, um, all groups of people who are disproportionately likely to be subjected to police abuse um, may not be um, the perfect victim in the eyes of a jury. And so for all of those reasons, even people who've had their rights violated can have a hard time finding a jury. I mean, excuse me, finding a lawyer. And in order to be successful, people, or attorneys at least, need to know what actually happened. So this is also bound up in discovery. Uh, can you talk about this and how cases like Ashcroft v. Uh, v. Iqbal have constrained kind of the ability of attorneys to even get the information they need uh, to win these kind of questions? Yeah. So the Supreme Court, again, in their fear that frivolous cases will flood the courts, civil rights cases and other cases, um, the Supreme Court created a heightened standard um, in 2007 and again in 2009 uh, for what a person who is bringing a lawsuit needs to know about their case before they can move forward in litigation. And the court calls it this a plausible pleading standard in a complaint, which is the first filing that goes to the, to the court and to the other side. The Supreme Court said you have to have enough facts in your complaint to establish a plausible entitlement to relief, which means in the court's view, you have to have facts that support your claim before you can move forward. The, the irony here and the challenge is that often people don't know exactly what happened and that's why they need to file the lawsuit so that they can get discovery and demand information from the other side. Well, and just to be clear, a lot of these cases, the police intentionally don't share the information for a number of reasons, uh, usually because they say that they're in it's part of an investigation or something. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly right. And and sometimes people know what's happened to them. If, if you were stopped and frisked on the street or wrongfully arrested or, you know, it, it happened to you and, you know, you were there, you witnessed it, um, you might not have a problem pleading out your explaining what happened in your complaint. But as I talk about in the book, when a person has a loved one who has died in police custody, for example, they may not know anything about what happened to their loved one. And I, I tell a story of a woman named Vicki Timpa um, in Dallas whose son died in police custody and the department wouldn't tell her anything about what happened. They wouldn't give her the body camera footage that they had. So she had to explain in her complaint, I don't know the names of the officers, I don't know exactly what happened, but I think my son's rights were violated. And then the city of Dallas moved to dismiss that complaint saying it was not plausible because it didn't have the detail that was necessary to put them on notice of what she was claiming when they had all the evidence that would give them exactly the notice they needed, but they were not required under Texas law to turn that over. And another area where the courts over the last decades, as, as you said, they've become more conservative, uh, have 
uh, narrowed things is the rollback of the notion of kind of the right to privacy, which also kind of factors into this a lot. How much privacy do people actually have and how does this play into these kind of cases? I guess that's a broader question than I really meant to ask, but I think you could probably navigate it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, yeah, the, I mean, the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted the Constitution and the protections um, within the Constitution over the past several decades has, and particularly in, in recent years, um, has um, had a lot of really troubling implications for, for civil liberties. Um, I talk in the book, I focus a lot in the book on the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution or to the Bill of Rights, um, which is the protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. And that is the focus of the book because my book really does focus on policing and police misconduct cases. And the Fourth Amendment is often the constitutional, the set of constitutional protections that a person in a, bringing a Section 1983 case says have been violated. And as I talk about in the book, the um, one of the places, one of the, the strongest privacy protections or the Supreme Court's and, and our nation's strongest understanding of, of privacy protections are in the home. And a lot of justices across the you know, ideological spectrum have written lofty opinions talking about the importance of privacy, the importance of a home, the protections um, of that home and what you do in that home against um, that you know through that, that that those protections are are in, in included in the Fourth Amendment's prohibition of unreasonable searches and seizures, but beginning in the '60s, this is a this is a common theme in the in the in the in the book and in our in our civil rights protections in the '60s, um, motivated by the need to you know enhance public safety and give officers discretion uh, that privacy uh, of the home has really uh, been chipped away at significantly. And um, there are now, I mean, there's there's a warrant requirement in the Fourth Amendment about the need for a warrant before you um, search or seize someone, but there are now so many exceptions to that warrant requirement um, that, you know, the, the exceptions have, have essentially swallowed the, the rule. And any time that an officer has a reasonable suspicion um, that, uh, you know, they need to enter without a warrant, they need to enter without um, first announcing and knocking their presence, um, you know, the, the, the police really have the, the power and discretion to do that. Recently, there was a case just a few weeks ago where someone, I think it was a few weeks ago, where someone, uh, there, the police went to the wrong house, uh, you know, started to break into the house. The guy comes to his own door with a gun and they just shoot him. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that's good. I'm laughing out of discomfort more than because I think yeah. it's funny. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen with that case. But you give an example of the court's finding that a shooting was justified because the person was shot. Uh, that they were holding a gun w when they were shot, even if it was never pointed at an officer. Uh, but you suggest, and I think this is interesting, that if that person had been holding a video game controller, the logic of why it was okay for the officers to do that would still hold. And this, of course, immediately made me think of Tamir Rice, who was a kid who was shot holding a toy gun while playing in a playground, as kids are wont to do. Uh, this seems like something that everybody should, you know, be concerned about. 
yeah. uh, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, whatever. But it seems like most people are OK with this. Uh, you know, kind of what are your thoughts on this kind of area of, you know, what's going on? Yeah, I think that <laughs> there's at least two areas of grave concern that you're raising in your question to me. Um, one is that when the Supreme Court thinks about Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, you would think that if you were doing nothing wrong, holding a video game, a video console, I mean, a video controller, um, that you had done nothing wrong. And if someone shot you that that or if a police officer shot you, that would be unreasonable and a violation of your constitutional rights. But the way in which the Supreme Court thinks about it and has instructed lower courts to think about it, the question is whether it was reasonable for the officer to believe that you were holding a gun. And if the answer is yes, and they were reasonably in fear uh, for their life or for the safety and lives of, of those in the in these surroundings, then they are justified in their decision to shoot. I think that this in and of itself is um, should be a, a focus of, of real concern. And in my view, if a person who has got a, a, you know, a video game controller in their hand is shot by the police, their rights have been violated. Um, and they and their family deserve compensation and some recognition of this life lost um, without any cause whatsoever. The other thing that your question makes me think about, and I think that this is hugely important and, and worth paying a lot of attention to, is that as the Second Amendment protections get bigger and bigger. The ability to carry a gun at any time, whether registered or not, um, in some parts exactly of the Exactly what I was thinking about, yes. That comes into conflict with the Supreme Court's assertion that police can use excessive force against, or excuse me, can use force, and it's not excessive, against anyone who they reasonably believe to be a threat. So you put those two things together, and... You will have people who are lawfully possessing guns being killed because police say that they perceived them to be a threat. They objectively, reasonably thought that they were a threat. Um, and it's hard to imagine that there won't be all sorts of implicit biases um, that go into play when officers are deciding who is a threat and who isn't. Um, if a white man goes into, you know, Costco with a AR-15 um, and a black man goes into Costco with an AR-15, you know, is, are the police going to, this is, are the police going to see those two men as, as an equal threat? And I really don't, I was going to say time will tell. I don't want time to tell because, uh, you know, I think that, I think that we're going to see a lot of really horrifying um, outcomes. Yeah. Uh, and then we kind of get back to kind of some, quali some qualified immunity stuff. Uh, and you've talked about this a little bit already. Uh, what are some of the ways in which it's, this doctrine has evolved to make it nearly impossible to hold specific officers responsible? I think when we get kind of this part of the book, you highlight the case of Harlow versus Fitzgerald. Yeah. So Harlow versus Fitzgerald is this case in 1982, where the Supreme Court said, um, we're no longer going to look at whether an officer acted in good faith. Instead, the question will be whether the officer violated clearly established law. And that's that term that has then been 
interpreted more and more and more narrowly. Um, I think one thing to to note about this is the whole the reason that the Supreme Court made this shift from good faith, uh, good faith defense to violation of clearly established law was that the court wanted uh, cases to be dismissed quicker. Um, if you have a subjective standard, like whether the officer was acting in good faith, it may require getting through depositions or even through trial to really understand the good or bad faith of the officer. But if you're looking at this question of whether the law was clearly established, you could decide that issue even sooner, or at least that's what the, the judges, the justices thought. Um, in reality, um, the, this clearly established law standard um, has really uh, had, I think, horrifying effects in not not decreasing the the or de not not increasing the speed with which these issues are decided or streamlining litigation. In fact, what I've found is that that defense, the clearly established um, standard, makes these cases longer and more expensive to litigate. Um, and they really have no relationship to reality and how we think of um, distinguishing strong from weak cases. It, it shouldn't be simply because an officer has the good fortune to do something in a way that hasn't precisely happened before that they should escape liability. But that's, in fact, what actually happens now. I kind of, you know, as we kind of turn toward, you know, why the world works this way. You know, I found the quote from Doug, the Douglas dissent in Terry versus Ohio in the Terry versus Ohio case that you incl included kind of prescient. There do seem to be powerful hydraulic forces uh, that make the courts more likely to water down constitutional guarantees that give the police the upper hand. Is this hydraulic pressure related to kind of the political climate of tough on crime? Is it related to what? What do you think causes this kind of? Uh, you know, I have a, another way I could ask this is to say it seems to me that uh, you know there you know there's a doctrine called finality that bothers me quite a bit, which kind of takes mm -hmm. the idea that jury decisions are more important than actual innocence in a lot of cases, and that really bothers me because they're saying it's more important for the to give the jury the right to be wrong than it is to actually uh, give people who are factually innocent uh, relief. And I feel like this is very similar to that. And I wonder what it is that makes courts come to the conclusion that, you know, protecting against like the uh, bothering police or bothering police departments is more important than protecting constitutional rights. It seems like their whole job is to protect constitutional rights as a judge. It's just very strange to me that we've gotten to this point. You, I, I, This is a kind of a rambling question, but I think an important one. It's absolutely important. I think it's hugely important. And, um, you know, part of what I talk about in the book is the idea that this horror story about too many frivolous lawsuits and officers threatened with bankruptcy and 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 the, the threat of being sued, you know, being so powerful that people won't do their jobs or, you know, won't decide to be police officers. It's a um, I think that part of the reason that all of these protections have have become so strong and and it's related to, to Justice Douglas's um, dissent in Terry is that that's a scary story. You know, there's a there's a there's a there's a fear of and of chaos that that might result. And also, and this is more to your point about finality. I think that it is it is 
dramatically privileging and recognizing and thinking about one side of the ledger over the other. You know, if you're thinking about the relationship between finality and justice, um, sure, would it be would it be nice to do things quickly and just once and, you know, <laughs> not have to, um, you know, do them again? Sure, in an ideal world. But if you're balancing those benefits against the possibility that you might execute a factually innocent person, then it's very hard to justify in any way, to my view, the finality. Not that it stopped them at all. Out. Not that it stopped <laughs> them at all. And similarly here, you know, there's all of this focus on the need to protect officers that you don't want to distract them or burden them. But on the other side, they're they're meritorious cases, horrifying cases of constitutional violations. And I think part of the problem is, and maybe this is naive, but but at least part of the problem is that the decision makers are not thinking enough and recognizing enough about what the costs are on the other side of that ledger. I mean, part of the reason that I wrote this book in the way I did, which is really focused on a lot of stories of people whose rights have been violated and who then tried to seek justice in the courts, that if you defend qualified immunity, you have to defend it, to my mind, in Alexander Baxter's case and in Jessup versus City of Fresno. And you have to appreciate what the human toll is of all of these restrictions. Um, and like I said, it may be naive of me to say, but I think that if you see these stories and you see uh, you know, these justifications for these limitations that are grounded in myth about you know the 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 dangers of giving people too much um justice in these cases um that you know perhaps it's it can at least slightly uh recalibrate the balance so i want to dig a little deeper into one of the things you've said which is that kind of one of the premises of this whole doctrine is that uh police officers would not do their work or might change the way they do their work if they were held responsible financially for their excesses but as your research has shown, and I think most people intuitively know, police are almost never held responsible directly. Uh, I think one of the hopes would be that there would be, of bringing a 1983-style case, is that you would maybe deter future bad police behavior. Uh, but if the police are never held financially responsible, uh, you know, the first problem seems to be that, you know, as you said at the very beginning of this interview, a lot of times they don't even know that any of it happened. Yeah. Uh, there's no, there can be no deterrent effect if nobody even knows it happened. It's like the tree falling in the forest. And the second thing you say, which I think is, is really troubling to me, is that sometimes the funds actually come from the communities that are directly impacted by the police shootings, yeah. uh, which is, you know, obviously mind-blowing in a lot of other ways. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know I didn't ask a very direct question there, but- No, no, it's, it's I mean, I do think, yes, in, in order for these cases to have an impact, there has to be some deterrent effect. And I think you could imagine two different paths toward deterrence. One might, one would be financial, you know, financial sanction. Um, and the other might be, you know, some sort of internal department discipline or other kind of um, action taken within the department. Um, as, as you said, my research has shown that officers virtually never pay anything in these cases out of their own pockets. Um, and that has nothing to do with qualified immunity, by the way. It's it's state and local uh, policies and laws that that create that um, financial It's like a second protection. level of shield, right? So yeah. you've got qualified immunity, and then you've got these state shields in addition. 
Exactly. Exactly. It's just a whole, a whole, um, you know, phalanx of shields. Um, I actually think that officers should not be responsible for paying settlements and judgments in these cases, because for the most part, officers are not going to have the money to make people whole in these cases. There are interesting um, ways to, 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 to sort of uh, create some financial sanction um, like New York City um, sometimes requires officers to make a contribution to a settlement when an officer's violated policy. So to contribute $1,000 or $2,000, just a little thing um, while still covering the, the vast majority of the payments in these cases. And I think that that's uh, a good idea and one that I would hope that more governments would think about. But ultimately, I think local governments should be picking up the tabs in these cases in order to make the plaintiffs whole. However, as you also pointed out in your question, um, the way in which local governments budget for and pay police misconduct lawsuits insulates police departments also from the financial consequences of these cases. And that I think is a real problem or certainly a missed opportunity because um, the police departments have incentive and means to try to change their policies to prevent things from happening in the future um, and creating some financial uh, benefit of reducing lawsuits and harm of increasing lawsuits um, would, I think, could prompt some sorts of um, good risk mitigating behavior. Uh, but in many places, as you say, there's no financial consequences for the departments and the money comes from central funds. And often when the money is greater than expected that they need for payouts, it should be no surprise that the money would come from uh, corners and crevices of the budget that are earmarked to help the least politically powerful, um, which as I write in, in the book, in Chicago, um, what I heard from a government uh, attorney who represented the city of Chicago, when police misconduct lawsuit payments went up, lead paint testing went down. And it was one of the most shocking <laughs> things uh, to contemplate that I um, uh, have have heard in a long time um, for the very reason that you say that the, the most disempowered um, in the city who are likely disproportionately the subjects of misconduct are then footing the bill um, instead of the officers or the department themselves. Um, there could also be as you know consequences in employment um, for the officers who are involved in these cases. But as I said in the beginning, and as you commented, most departments don't gather and analyze this information. I think that they should. Um, I think that uh, you know changes made to have there be real attention paid to these lawsuits and what information comes out in these lawsuits and perhaps um, to discipline officers from what happened in these uh, lawsuits would be an important change that could improve the deterrent effect of these suits. Well, and, you know, we talked about shields upon shields. I think there's also yeah. kind of shields upon shields upon shields. And what I mean by that is one possible way out of this or one way to deal with this is for the judgments not to be monetary, but them to be court-ordered policy changes. And you also mentioned that that's particularly hard to do because the court kind of prefers this kind of monetary model. Is that correct? It is correct. Boy, this book sounds like a real drag. And what a what a what a what a lot of bad news here. But it's true. Um, the Supreme Court has made it very difficult to get um, forward looking relief in these cases. And I have a whole chapter dedicated to this. But I think the key case and really all that you need to 
No, it's from a case called City of Los Angeles versus Lyons, which is a case brought in the 80s by a band named Adolph Lyons, who was put in a chokehold by an LAPD officer and wanted to get an injunction to stop the use of chokeholds in Los Angeles. And the Supreme Court said he couldn't get that kind of relief because he could not show a grave and immediate risk that he would be subjected to a chokehold again uh, in the near future. And because he couldn't show that, the court said he doesn't have what's called standing to seek injunctive relief. But what that ends up meaning is uh, it's very difficult to get injunctive relief in police misconduct cases. I mean, there are some kinds, in fact, prison conditions cases, it can be easier to get injunctive relief because it's the same group of prisoners and guards who are interacting in an enclosed space, um, you know, who need their medication or, you know, wh whatever it is so that there is some um, certainty that there's going to be repeated contact between the officers and the prisoners. Um, but in policing, it's much harder to say, I expect that this is going to happen to me again. And that ruling has made it very difficult to get these kinds of forward-looking relief that sometimes people really want more than the money in these cases. They want something um, that happens to them not to happen to their loved ones or their community. Okay, so now we've gone through all the dark, depressing corners of, of all this. Let's try another tact. Let's assume people don't want to throw themselves into the thicket and sue the police. Is it any easier, and I've, I'm afraid that, to get the, I already know the answer, but is it any easier to sue a town or city for police abuse? <laughs> the answer <laughs> is no. Um, and um, <clears throat> And in fact, it can be even more challenging in some ways because um, well, although in, if you are a private company um, and you were sued, you're, you know, you owned ABC foods and your driver hit someone with they were crossing the street, you ABC foods would be sued and would be responsible under this idea that's called vicarious liability, or if you want fancier words, uh, respondeat superior liability. But when you're talking about constitutional protections, uh, it doesn't work that way. And the Supreme Court has said that in order to bring a claim against a local government, you have to show that the government had a, a policy unconstitutional on its face, which is not usually how policies are written, um, or a- You'd like to hope they wrote it without <laughs> intentionally being unconstitutional. Right. I mean, and and things used to be intentional, you know, written in intentionally unconstitutional ways, but 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 they aren't so much these days. Instead, it's usually that there's a custom or a practice or a failure to supervise or train. And um those can be bases for local government liability. But unsurprisingly, the Supreme Court has made those standards very difficult to meet. And um, there are a lot of uh, departments that are severely dysfunctional. I talk in the book about uh, the police department in Vallejo, California, which is one of the worst that I've read about, um, where there has not been a finding that the city violated anyone's constitutional rights, even though they've done some, some pretty extraordinary things. And, and that is tied to the challenges of bringing these claims against local governments. 
So you've done all this research. You explained the problems with 1983 cases and the incredibly high hurdles necessary to overcome qualified immunity. What did you learn from the process? And give us some bright light. What might be a better way and how are we going to get there? <laughs> well, the last chapter does um, is called uh, A Better Way. And, you know, I I offer some, some what I think are... Um, concrete suggestions for how uh, we can move forward to make the system better. I mean, I don't claim that anything that I suggest is going to create a perfectly functional system of police accountability, but I do think that there are important things that can be done and are being done right now to improve this system somewhat. And some of the changes that are happening around the country are dealing with what you might think of as the front end um, accountability, just limiting the kinds of interactions that happen between police and, and community members, uh, limiting uh, low-level traffic stops, which has been done in Philadelphia and Los Angeles and considered in other places, um, having uh, mental health professionals, not police officers, respond to people who are in mental health crisis. And I think that even making those two changes um, on their own would have a, a dramatic effect if they were actually implemented and funded and, and followed. But I also think that a lot can happen on the back end. And I don't have very much faith in the Supreme Court or in Congress right now to get police reforms done. But I actually think there's a lot that can happen in state and local governments. There's uh, local, or excuse me, state governments around the country have considered um, bills that would create state law rights to sue for constitutional violations that do not have qualified immunity as a defense. And um, Colorado and New Mexico and New York City have passed just that kind of legislation. And, and actually in an upcoming project, I and a few co-authors are going to investigate what impact those statutes have had. Um, not surprisingly, my, my prediction is that, you know, Courthouses are not filled with frivolous cases and officers going bankrupt and the and the like. That there have been incremental improvements, but important improvements um, to those states' um, civil rights ecosystems. Um, I also think that there can be ways that local governments um, do more to improve the deterrent effect of these suits by requiring officers to contribute to settlements and judgments. Uh, you know, at, at times and to a degree um, that local police departments uh, carry the costs of those lawsuits and that the departments or outsiders, independent auditors or inspectors general be appointed to review the information in those suits, you know, with an eye toward figuring out um, what can be done to prevent similar suits from happening in the future. And I think that, you know, I, I, talk about those kinds of improvements, I recognize that they're incremental. They don't get to uh, ultimate questions about uh, what role police should serve in our society, whether we should have police at all. Um, but it, um, I think my hope is that these are sort of basic first step ideas that people with a variety of views about what public safety should look like could get behind. A smart person uh, who practices uh, before many courts uh, once told me that if he were writing uh, for or arguing in front of the Supreme Court, he would definitely be writing everything he did in kind of an originalist, 
uh, kind of reasoning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I know given this particular issue has already been litigated to death, there's not much you could do, but let's assume hypothetically that you are having to enter a 1983 style case right now. What, I mean, are there any tactics that might work aside from just literally having the perfect set of thing where the right person did the right thing and there was a previous person who'd done the exact same thing? And is there any way to cut through any of this or are we just, is everyone just doomed by, you know, who uses this, this, uh, this, this mechanism? No, everyone's not doomed. Definitely not. And, and, you know, when I teach um, this material to my students, I can see after a couple of days you know, a, a fog sort of descend over their eyes and they start thinking about whether they should be a trust and estates lawyer instead, or, you know, just give up entirely on civil rights litigation. And that's the moment that I bring a civil rights attorney in to talk to students. It can be done. It is done. People do it every day. There's um, victories in court and civil rights cases every day. I think that it's much harder than it should be, um, but it is still doable. And I would say if I was bringing a civil rights case today and, and anticipated that qualified immunity um, was going to be an issue, I would I would do a, a number of things in my briefs arguing against it. First, I would um, describe the violation as an obvious one for which no case was necessary, or maybe I'd put that argument at the end. But then there's a lot that can be done in framing the facts of a case. And you can frame the facts of your case in a way, obviously not, not lying, but, but framing them in a way that, that does sound familiar and does sound like um, other cases. I mean, part of one of many critiques, I mean, we, got, we, heard, we could spend a whole, a whole day talking about critiques of qualified immunity, but one of them is that understanding whether the law is clearly established is very, very subjective in the eyes of the judge. And, and I think that there's a lot that actually can be done through advocacy and through framing and storytelling um, to make cases look similar and different. So I would do a lot of research um, and then I would, I would work hard to try to frame the cases in ways that make the law sound clearly established. Okay. I always ask if there are any criminal justice related books. I know you wrote one, but are there any that you like and might recommend to our listeners? Do you have any favorite uh, books? Gosh, I have, I'm looking over at my bookshelf. You can see I have a, a whole bookshelf um, full of books that I love. Um, and boy, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple of them. I mean, I think that, um, Corrections in Ink by uh, Carrie Blackener is, is, is a fabulous book that gives you a real insight about the experience of being in prison. I have not been in prison, so, uh, you know, I, but my sense of the book was that it was very passionately told um, and and uh, wonderful to read. Yeah, we're um, friends. She's, she's, she's good people. <laughs> she seems great, like great people. Um, I think that, I'll give you two more. I think that... Um, uh, charged by Emily Bazelon is a really powerful book. And again, I, I think it's going to say your taste is good. Both of those people have been on the podcast to talk about those books. So you're excellent. You're great. Excellent. I'm doing Roll great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and what I love about Emily's book is that she, I mean, I, I looked at her book. I tried to emulate in some ways her book because she moves through a lot of really important dense information about the prosecutorial role, but she also does it by embedding that information into stories that are so compelling and richly told um, that I think it's it's a really important book to understand um, uh, the 
you know, the role that prosecutors play. And then the last one I'm gonna I'm gonna offer um, is a book called His Name is George Floyd. Um, it just won the Pulitzer um, on Monday. And what I love about it is that it tells the story of George Floyd's life. Um, and it's not just about the criminal justice system, but the criminal justice system isn't just about the criminal justice system. It, and this book talks about, um, you know, racism and the interaction of racism and poverty and housing and in education and in the criminal justice system. And, and um, all the while talking about George Floyd's life um, and, and his death and the aftermath of his death. And I think that, you know, to the extent that we talk about structural failures in the criminal justice system. His name is George Floyd, um, just offers a multidimensional telling um, in, in a really tangible way around a story, again, that we all um, know at least part of. Um, and I think it's an extremely powerful book. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked, but did not? And sometimes the answer is nothing, but it's really just to get at if there are things you wanted to talk about that I didn't get to. Boy, I think you, I think you got, um, I think you've got just about uh, everything that I can, uh, I can imagine. You certainly hit all of the chapters uh, and, and all of the main um points um in fairness but, i didn't hit two chapters but <laughs> you didn't i was just gonna say there are two chapters that you missed one about judges and one about juries but um and those are and those are good good important um chapters too but no i think that um you know that there that you you what i what i like about the questions and about the conversations is it's made clear that this is not just about qualified immunity and qualified immunity is taken up a great deal of airtime in our conversations about police accountability. And there's a lot to criticize about qualified immunity, but that it's just one piece in a much, in a much bigger puzzle and understanding the whole puzzle, um, I think really illuminates um, just how stacked the system is against people who are seeking justice in the courts. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It was really great talking with you. Oh, it was great. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And now, my take. I've been very annoyed by the discussion of Daniel Penny, the Marine veteran who choked Jordan Neely to death. Now, I want to be very clear that I do not have any desire for Daniel Penny or anyone else to be exposed to the horror of our justice system, and I want him to get all of the help that he needs. Too many of our veterans come back with serious problems and end up engaging in violence. I believe 14% of our incarcerated population are, is made up of former veterans. Anyway, while I disagree with the likely punishment, it is critical that we continue to hold the line and insist that it remains illegal for people to resort to vigilantism unless there's an actual real and present threat to the people around them. If we were to accept that what Mr. Penny did was acceptable, in essence, anyone could justify killing anyone else simply by saying that the target uttered a threat. No matter what you think of the people involved, of mental illness, of homelessness, or of people with prior records. This is a terrible precedent to set. The people who are sending, mi sending millions of dollars for Mr. Penny's defense and suggesting that he is somehow a good Samaritan are way off base. And what they are suggesting is truly dangerous. That many of these same people 
ceaselessly call for tough on crime laws, harsh sentencing, and brutal incarceration to tell you everything you need to know about where these feelings are coming from. In addition, it is quite sad and kind of ridiculous to suggest that Mr. Neely's death was justified because he was a human being who had prior charges and arrests. Mr. Neely had no way of knowing that, and by all accounts, Mr. Penny made no actual threatening moves and attacked nobody. He simply said a few things that made people feel uncomfortable. If we justify vigilantism in a case like this, we are welcoming back Reconstruction-era retributions and an Old West mentality. There's a lot of racism and hatred of homeless people built in here too. But for those who actually care about veterans, remember there are a lot of veterans who are homeless. Mr. Penny could easily have been a homeless vet as well. Anyway, we need to do better and stop justifying what should not be considered justifiable. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or who have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Make sure you add us on social media and share our posts across your networks. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.